Well, Purim is uh, Thursday, right? And uh, I wanted to talk about uh, certain ideas about Purim, uh, which I think is really very, it's very important to know, uh, you know. I mean, there are many things about Purim that we can ask that in many ways heighten the mystery of Purim. Now, now, Purim seems to be a very simple idea. It's obviously a historical event. Uh, there's a hero, which is Mordechai, and there's a heroine, which is Esther. There's a villain, Homan, and I include, of course, Achashverosh. They're both villains. And obviously, it's the story of the salvation, the Hatzola, of the Jews uh, from a plan that was hatched by Haman to kill all the Jews. Uh, and of course, uh, Haman is an Amalekite, he's an Amalekite. And uh, he wanted to, of course, kill all the Jews. He was able to convince Achashverosh, and Achashverosh, of course, he went along with it. And uh, this story, obviously, is where it was, tables were turned, Haman himself was killed, <laughs> hung on the very gallows that he wanted to prepare for Mordechai. And of course, the Jews fought many of the people in Persia on the 13th and 14th of, Ad, of Adar. And, of course, that day became a tremendous day of celebration for the Jewish people. Well, that's the story of Purim, you see. But really, when you think about it, there's a lot of things that one has to be able to say about Purim. So I, I, let me ask a, 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 a series of questions. One, other than the historical event, what really is the essence of Purim? That we as Jewish people, as people who observe the Torah and do the mitzvahs, what is the essence of Purim? What really happens on Purim? Is it really a celebration or a commemoration of the fact that the Jews were saved? Or is there something much greater? Uh, another thing I would ask is, what can we take away from Purim as the avoider of Purim? What can we do on Purim uh, in terms of uh, the essential mitzvah, what Purim is? So what can we do to enhance or to further the spirituality of Purim? And that is a very important question, and that's really, I, I want to try to really answer that. What can we, as Jews, do on Purim? And what is required of us? It also answers the question of why Purim is so powerful, which it is. You know, I mean, uh, it's funny because it says that on Yom Kippur, it says Yom Kippur is a Yom Kippurim, right? A day of atonement. But the word Kippurim means like Purim. That means Yom Kippur is a day like Purim. But it's like Purim. It does not equal Purim. Purim is greater than Yom Kippur. That's what we learn. But the question is why? How is it possible that Yom Kippur is inferior to Purim? Another question, you see, that it says that in the Messianic era, 
the holiday that will be really completely kept is Purim. Not the other holidays. Now the reason why the other holidays are not really kept is because whatever the Tikkun process that had to be accomplished by those historical events, they have been accomplished by the time the Mashiach comes. So we understand why they are not really practiced the way they used to be. Because the Tikkun process, which they were formulated for, has been completed. And therefore, uh, they're not really kept. However, Purim is. And obviously the question is why? You know, how, why is it that Purim should be greater than Pesach and Shavuos, Sukkot, and so on? So that's a, that's a powerful question. Now also, why did Chazal make Purim holiday? I mean, if you think about it, the Jews throughout history have been threatened with extinction, termination, obliteration, so many times. So how do the Chazal, how do the rabbis know when to make a holiday and when not to make a holiday? So the question is, what's the formula that they, they, that they keep? And what did they see that they decided to make Purim a, a Yom Tov, a national Jewish holiday? That is the question. Also, we have certain mitzvahs. One of them is Mishloach Manas, right? Which means to give, right, food to uh, a Jew, right? question is why. I mean, it's nice to be able to get free gifts, especially if they are prepared foods. But why is that a mitzvah that the rabbis, the chazal, you know, uh, enacted? Also, Matonis Lev Yoinim. Why do we have to give charity, gifts to poor people? I mean, that's really a mitzvah every day. So what makes it special on Purim? You see. Also, there's a strange halacha where you're supposed to get drunk on Purim to the extent where you do not, you cannot tell the difference between Baruch Mordechai, Blessed Mordechai, and Oro Homon, and Cursed is Homon. I mean, what is that supposed to mean? Uh, you know, you don't sit drink until you get so drunk that you're not aware of the difference. Why? Why is that, you see? So, um, these are all the questions uh, in terms of what we can ask. And there are many more, but, you know, I'm just going to bring these down to emphasize the greatness of Purim. Okay. Now, Purim is a very great holiday. We don't realize its greatness. Part of the problem is that everybody's so in, in, into giving Mishlech Monas. It's like the whole day spent on giving out Mishlech Monas to friends and neighbors, family and so on, that we don't really engage in the greatness of the holiday the way it should be. So that's you know, one of the things that I want to bring down. What is the power of Purim? That's what I want to talk about also. Now, I will start this year, okay, by telling you that we know the mitzvah of the Torah, what God wants, is what's called four avodos. One, what does that mean? God wants the Jewish people to engage 
in four things. Besides learning the Torah and doing the mitzvahs, which of course is part of the Tariyag, 613 commandments. But really when you think about it, on a spiritual and emotional level, there are four states that a person should try to achieve. And if he does, then he will be in the future world. There's no question about that. We, what are they? Well, the first mitzvah to work on is emunah, to believe in God, to believe that there is a supernatural, superior being, right, that created the world, that is responsible for all the unbelievable wisdom of the world, and of course, who directs the world. This is all part of believing in God, that He is, that He created the world, that He directs the world constantly, you see? And there's no question, of course, that we are His nation. That's what He says. You are my nation and I am your God. So that's the mitzvah of Amunah. Second mitzvah, that's very important. And again, it's part of the emotional st uh, status that a Jew has to reach. And that mitzvah is called bitochen, trust. What does that mean? We believe that God will keep his promise. That's really what bitochen is. God calls us, his children, he refers to himself as our father. He refers to himself as a king. Clearly, there's an unbelievable attachment of God to the Jewish people. And he, therefore, based on that, it's obvious and logical that he will relate to us as a father, right, and, uh, uh, and, and a king, and that we are his children, you see, and he, because of that, there's what's called tacit agreement that he will act as a father, you see, to us, and that he sees us as his children. Therefore, we have betoken that based on those ideas which he himself said, self, uh, that God himself says, you are children of God, that he will act in that role. Now, that's his... So therefore, in a certain sense, that's his promise. And we believe that he will fulfill his promise. You see? And therefore, he will ensure that we will be in a future world uh, in a state of dvekas or attachment. So that's the mitzvah bitochem, that God will always be good to us even though we don't understand a great deal of his actions or his behavior. So that's the second mitzvah. The third mitzvah, again, is emotional. It's called yiro. It's called fear. <clears throat> that we have to fear God. What is fear? Fear has two components to it. One is to fear him in the sense that there is an accountability to your actions. God is looking. 
and he's weighing your actions. And also he will, you know, uh, follow it up with results, repercussions, consequences. So therefore we are in fear of him because we know he's always looking at our acts and judging us. The second aspect of fear is awe, is that his majesty, his greatness, is beyond what we can comprehend. And there's a great deal to talk about that, but his majesty is apparent when you look at the unbelievable complexity of this world. I mean, you can analyze any simple organism you can't believe the complexity of this uh, product, you know. And you realize that only an intelligence that is beyond comprehension could have made any of this. I mean, that's a whole subject to go into. But this concept, you know, of the complexity of the world is incredible. So that's the awe that we have of God. So, we've got three so far. Emuna, belief. Bitochen, trust. Yira is fear from the accountability. And fear in terms of awe, his majesty. Now, there's one more, which is the greatest of all. It's interesting. And that it really, in many ways, it is that which God wants. He wants us to be in this state which I'm now going to tell you and you will now understand that Purim actually manifested that and that is the power of Purim what is that of which I speak it is called Ahava, love God wants us to love him he really does now it's interesting that all the religions of the the uh, ancient world basically they are predicated on what that you have to either supplicate to God that he should sustain you he should do good to you benefit you or he should protect you from harm or you want to placate him to appease him right so he won't be angry at you I mean, these are the objectives of religions throughout history. And therefore, he requires obedience. In fact, the word Islam, from Islam, uh, it means submission, as far as I know. In any case, that is the basic objectives of all religions. But the objective in Judaism is far beyond that. The objective is a emotional relationship between us and God called love, Avo. Where do we see this? Well, it says Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elkeinu, Hashem Echad, hear Israel, right? The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Of course, obviously, uh, blessed is his kingdom. But then he says something very strange. You have to ask Hashem and you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, which is 
all your energies, everything that you can give to another being, he wants that. And with all your possessions. God is saying that. He wants us to love him. You know, we don't think about that very often. Really? You know? And that requires a tremendous amount of work to love God. This is a mitzvah, to love God. To love Him, you see. And in, in the end, it is the greatest of all mitzvah because it defines the relationship that He wants a Jew to have to Him. That's not easy. You really have to work on it. But how do you get to love somebody? And the answer is that whoever loves us, whoever is beneficial to us, whoever looks out completely for our welfare, we reciprocate. We love them back. Right. So therefore, Ava is achieved, right, by studying his actions toward us and how they are totally in terms of they are totally uh, committed to our benefit, even when it doesn't look that way, that the whole world is there to give pleasure to mankind and certainly to the Jewish people, and that God is completely caring uh, about the Jewish people, and they are always uppermost in his thoughts. So when you realize how much God loves us, we can begin then to love him back in that measure. Of course, we can never love him the way he loves us. But that's the essence. If you have achieved Avas Yisrael, the love of a Jew, right? And the Avas Torah, the love of Torah, and the Avas Hashem, the love of God, really you are at the highest level of Avoidor. There really is nothing higher. What demonstrates to God, and this is a very important idea, that we love Him. I mean, love is an emotional feeling. It's a feeling. It's an emotional state. You know? But what demonstrates that state to God? It's a very important concept. How do you demonstrate love? And the answer is, right, is certainly it's His actions, our actions, to him, but especially it's called loyalty. We are loyal to God. The Jews are the most loyal people to God that has ever existed. I mean, we'll just take a look at Jewish history, the amount of death and destruction, butchery and slaughter that the Jews have gone through to be loyal to God to the Torah, to the mitzvahs, right? It's unbelievable. The loyalty to God is the greatest demonstration of all. And I had mentioned that this is a major concept in the Akedah. You see, and the Akedah was one of the greatest demonstrations of Messiah's Nefesh, sacrificing oneself for God himself. And I mentioned, I gave uh, just recently two very important shurim about the Akedah and why God wanted it. 
but in a very simple uh, um, statement, God rules the world through justice or din. So the Sultan says something very interesting. Rashi brings it down by the Akedah. Machi Bosam. What, why do you love them so much? I mean, Shibo is love. So the Sultan actually says, what is it about the Jews that you love so much, right? That you are willing to bend over backwards, literally. Well, I can't say literally about God, but figuratively, right? In order to bring them a Yeshua, a salvation, and to give them Oidim Hapo. Like, what's going on here? I've never seen what Sultan says, anyway. I've never seen such devotion, such loyalty, and such love that you have to a people even when they sin. So what Avraham Avinu did is the answer, and that's what I mentioned, that God says, you know, I operate on din, justice. You know, in other words, what you do, I will, be, I will do that back to you. So the Jews love me so much, they just won't let me go. If that's the case, how can I let them go? If they love me so much, how can I not love them back? And that's the answer. And by the way, that's the answer to a very important idea. Why do you find that so much, or so many times, the Jews had to sacrifice their lives for God? There's so much, Jewish history is filled with the self-sacrifice of the Jewish people to honor God, to be loyal to Him. Because that's the greatest display or demonstration of their love for Him. And I mentioned then in the Tushurim of the Akedah and so on, that God needs that because that is the answer why He's going to save them even though they may not deserve it. Because all the of all the exhibition of unbelievable loyalty and love that they have shown. So this is really the answer why the, the, the circumstances that the Jews find themselves so many times involves what's called Messias Nefesh or self-sacrifice. Because God wants a demonstration, proof of love, that the Jews love him. And therefore, he can say to the Sultan, to all the nations of the world, they love me and I love them back. That is why, in the end of time, they will be the greatest nation the world has ever seen. In fact, we cannot even begin to comprehend when God finally throws off the concealment that he has. We cannot even begin to understand that. Now, this is a central feature that God wants our love in Purim. How? Okay. What is important to understand is that things happen because there's a spiritual necessity that the Jews must perform or execute. And that is brought about by a historical event. If for whatever reason that event does not occur, then they have to continue to do that holiday, but not in the form of a historical event, but rather in the form of the halachas, the laws that we keep in reference to 
to that historical event. Purim really starts off at Matan Torah, when the Jews receive the Torah. And what God wanted, of course, is that the Jews should accept the Torah, it's called Kabbalah Torah, out of love. Because that's what he wants. And did they? Yes. They accepted the Torah out of love because they said, Na'asev Nishma. We will do and then we will understand. Right? Which is a tremendous way of accepting the Torah. But what's interesting, the Mendesh also says, that it says, and Israel encamped underneath the mountain. So the, the Chazal tell us that what God did is the Jews did not accept the Torah. So God took Mount Sinai and ripped it off its base and let it hover over the Jewish people and said, if you accept the Torah, fine. If not, I'm going to drop the mountain and all of you will be buried underneath the mountain. What do we see? That the Jews did not accept the Torah out of love. They didn't want it. So God threatened them that they must accept the Torah or all, they all will die. Now, of course, that's the question, because we know they did accept the Torah with love, because it's Nasev and Ishma, right? So we know that. So what does it mean that God had to intimidate and threaten them with death if they don't accept the old law? So the, uh, the, the, the Torah, so Toysois comments there that the written law, which is Torah Shabbat Sav, they accepted with love. But the oral law, the Torah Shabbat they did not. And they had to be compelled to accept it. <clears throat> you see. Now what that meant is that there was a pagam, which is a defect, in that very important feature that the Jews should accept what God gives them with tremendous devotion, loyalty, and love. There was a defect. You see. It's a pagam that the Jews would have to rectify. Because that is a critical feature like I said God wants the love of the Jews so what God did is very interesting he arranged a historical event hundreds of years later basically about 800 years later that would force the Jews to make again that decision will they accept the all law with love or not what was that event called that event was called Purim. But how? How does it work? Now, we have to understand something very important. Why is it that the Jews did not accept the oral law? Why? Is it because it's burdensome? Because the oral law has many details that the written law doesn't repeat or say, and that's why they didn't want it? No. The reason why, as far as I'm concerned, is because the Jews had a very difficult uh, uh, idea to comprehend. Why do we have to have so many laws? I mean, we can understand how the written law it really is the Torah, and it is the path to spirituality. We can understand that because God wants it to be spiritual. But why does God have to give us so many laws that basically reinforce civilization? And they allow civilization to do what? To, uh, pr pr you know, to uh, uh, preserve and to flourish. 
you know, look at a lot of the oral law. You know, it's all about ownership and, and, and marriage and so on. There's so much of the oral law that has the details, you know, of those laws which every nation has. In order for a civilization to exist, every nation has to have laws or else they will fold. They will disappear. Because in order for society to, to exist, there has to be laws or else it becomes anarchy and chaos. So the Jews to themselves would say, why do we need all these laws? Why can't we make up the laws of civilization? Just like every nation does. Why does it have to be Torah? Why does it have to be part of the Torah? Right? Which is, when you think about it, a very interesting question. It was, why can't we make our own laws of what constitutes, you know, the laws that society needs to hold together? But why does it have to be part of Torah? It's not really spiritual. So therefore, they didn't want the oral law. They didn't want all the details of laws that apply basically to the preservation of society. And therefore, in their heart, they rejected it. But God said, no, you need to understand that the laws of the Torah, even those that seem to be the preservation of society, is spiritual, really. Because man not only has to exist and to recognize the dominion of God, but he has to live in a certain way, you see, to execute spirituality. What did God do? He made them, he put them in exile. When? In Babylon and in Persia. That was really the beginning of the exile, especially with the destruction of the temple. And really that was the first time that the Jews could see the laws of other nations because they were in the nations. They were in exile. And they could see the justice of the laws, the logic of the laws of the other nations, you see. And in a certain sense, they could compare it to Torah, the Jewish laws, and see which one would come out on top. So therefore, God waited. He waited till the Jews would be in exile and they would be amongst nations of the world especially Babylon, and of course Persia. And God said, watch what they will do. And then, amazing, all of a sudden, they hear a rumor that Ahasuerus agreed to Homon's Lashon Hara, that the Jews are special, they don't really observe the laws of Persia, they are separate, and so on. And he actually believed it, and he acceded to Haman's demand that all the Jews in the kingdom should die. You see? And the Jews, what was their reaction? They were shocked. Why were they shocked? Because it's incredible. It's interesting that the Megillah starts off with the great feast that Ahasuerus had. And the Jews actually went to that feast. You see? And that was a display of their loyalty to Persia. So here they are eating at the meal and they're loyal to Persia. 
Why kill them? Obviously, the Jews were loyal citizens. They observed the laws of Persia. They paid tax. They were very important economically to Persia. They're good citizens. So how could all of a sudden, because of some, you know, some grand vizier, the evil of a grand vizier, how do you decide to kill them? You see, imagine if all of a sudden you wake up one day and you hear that the Congress of America had decided right, to kill all the Jews. So the first thing you would go is into shock because it doesn't make sense. How can a nation that prides itself on just laws do this? That's exactly what the Jews felt. <clears throat> so what they saw for the first time, that the laws of the nations of the world is basically bankrupt. It's what it is. In other words, nations make laws because of their self-interest. That's why they make laws. You know, it serves them to have this law. <coughs> but as soon as the interest changes, they will change the law. In other words, they realized that in the nations of the world, the law is based on what? It becomes legal, but it's not just. There's a difference between legality and justice. In other words, if you violate the law, you have done something illegal. But many times if you violate the law, you may be the one who is exercising justice and not the nation that promulgates the law, you see. So they realize, what kind of a nation is this, Persia, that they're willing to commit genocide for nothing? And of course, Haman was willing to pay 10,000 pounds of, of uh, gold, water, silver, whatever, which, by the way, I once read, is equivalent to $100 million in today's money. For what? He obviously had to make up that money because if you kill all the Jews, what happens to their tax, right? And Akashverosh needs their tax. But how do you understand that Akashverosh agreed to commit genocide? For what? This is what they realized. So they realize that the Torah laws are not merely legal, it's justice. And therefore, man has to live with man in a certain way in order to become spiritual, you see. So the path of spirituality is not only to do mitzvahs, being odem l'mokam, between man and God, but it's also being odem l'chaveroi, between man and man, there has to be a certain path in order to go, and that itself will lead to spirituality. That's what they realized, ultimately, what Teresh Peh is. It's a very important idea. In other words, they were enlightened. That's what Purim is about. The enlightenment of the Jews to what the Torah really is, and therefore they realized that God only has their benefit in mind, and that created unbelievable avo, love. You see, where do you see this? You see it because it says in the Megillah, La Yehudim Oiro. To the Jews, there was Oiro, enlightenment, for Simcha, for Sosin, and joy and happiness. Now it should have just said, and to the Jews, there was joy and happiness because they were saved from the decree of Haman. But it doesn't say that. It adds the word Oiro, 
light, enlightenment. What was the enlightenment that the Jews had, you see? And the answer is, they finally realized what Teresh Peh is, and therefore Chazal say, Kimu Kiblu. They accepted, right? They executed what they accepted previously. Kimu, they fulfilled Kiblu, Masha Kiblu Kvar. What they accepted before, which refers to Matan Torah, it refers to giving of the Torah, right? And it refers to the fact that they accepted it, they re-accepted it, but this time they accepted it, accepted it with Ava love. That's it. So Purim is a holiday of enlightenment where they understood finally that whatever God does for the Jews is unbelievable chesed for the Jews, you see. And what this did is it awakened their love of God. That's the power of Purim, you see. But it's interesting that God had to bring them to Persia in order to bring this out. He had to demonstrate to them the bankruptcy, you know, the inferiority of the laws of the Goyim. I mean, you take a look, even today, you realize how many Jews were killed, even Goyim, how many Goyim were killed, how much misery is the world has the world gone through because of the laws of mankind? Who even knows? Who can keep track of this? You see. Because the laws of mankind are not based on justice. They look like they are. But that's a fraud. They're based on self-interest. You see. This is what the Jews realized. A very important concept. You see. Now, since they did the tikkun, they rectified a problem, right, that they had, and that was Matan Torah, where they did not accept the law, the oral law, except with threat. They actually were massacring that. They rectified that, because now they accepted it, re-accepted it with love. So therefore Chazal said, when the Jews rectify a light, a spiritual necessity, that they did not do before, right, then that deserves to be a holiday because it's a new rectification that never happened before. But if they reinforce a spiritual light, then we don't make a holiday because the Jews have been saved many times. They have been threatened many times, but we don't make that into a holiday. But Purim was a complete change in the ideology of the Jews and they realize what the Torah really is that's the concept of Purim and that's why Purim is so great because it was a rededication to God and that is the love that the Jews have of God and from that there follows many things we now understand the essence of Purim is what is the rededication, right? The re-expression of their love of the Torah and God. That's the power of Purim, you see. What is the avoid of Purim? What must we Jews take away? Well, I said, there are four different emotions that we have to develop. One is emunah, belief. Bitochen, trust. Yira, fear from accountability, 
and fear or rather awe of the acts of God and of course Avo God wants us to love him you see so therefore the avoid of Purim is to think about God and how good he is to the Jewish people that's what we want to do and so on and that hopefully will generate a tremendous Avo love of God and that's why by the way Purim is greater than Yom Kippur because on Yom Kippur you repent out of fear not out of love because it's a time of judgment right but on Purim they repented they reaccepted the oral law out of love not out of fear so therefore Yom Kippurim Yom Kippur is a day like Purim where they did repentance out of love you see and that is why Purim, in the end, is the real holiday, the only holiday, in fact, that is really kept in the Messianic era. Because it is the ultimate successful conclusion of the Jews' relationship with God. If you have to Hashem lo and you will love the Lord your God, with all your heart, right, with all your soul, and with all your might. It can't get better. So the holiday that demonstrates where the Jews actually succeeded in this unbelievable level, madrega, degree of love, that is the holiday of the Mashiach. And that concept of love is what's going to be unbelievably pervasive among all the Jews. Now once the Chazal, the rabbis, realized that, they said, listen, you know, we have to realize that we have to be for ourselves. can't rely on the nations of the world. In many ways, they do tremendously tre- treacherous things. I mean, I'm reminded today, look at Biden and Iran. I mean, here's this guy making a deal with Iran, right? He's giving them tens of billions of dollars. Not only that, not only the money, but he's allowing them to go nuclear. Yet he knows that his ally Israel, which is the only real ally in the Middle East, this is an existential threat. So how does, how does this guy, I mean, this guy is an unbelievable traitor to an ally. And it's not just Israel. The whole Middle East will go crazy. Because, you know, you know the, uh, the Iranians are Shiites, and they want to take over the is- Islamic world. Because the rest of the Islamic world mostly is Sunnis. So they are an unbelievable threat to the entire Middle East. And of course they're going to do much more. They're going to threaten Europe and so on. So how does this man, this guy's a moron. It's unbelievable. This is a guy who calls himself a friend of Israel. And I love the way these guys, when they go to Israel, they keep talking about the, the everlasting bond between America and Israel. It's nonsense. You know, it's incredible treachery of what they're doing. So this is common. This is exactly what Akashverish does. As soon as your interests change because America wants Iranian oil, because he shut off all the oil of America. I mean, you can't, you can't even make this stuff up. That's how ludicrous. It's like Alice in Wonderland scenario, you see. So when you realize what this guy's doing, it's just beyond belief. It's, like it's, it's another Akashverish treachery. That's what it is, you see. So Biden can be compared to Achashverosh, you see. 
That's just incredible. But in any case, um, so therefore Chazal said, you have to have Mishleich Monas. Each Jew has to give each other Jew, right, two foods, because you have to express your caring and your love of other Jews. Because we have to stick together. Because everybody is a traitor out there, ultimately, as soon as their self-interest changes. So Mishleich Monas, right, what it does is when you give your neighbor something to eat, food, whatever, and they give you, so that creates, that generates a certain feeling of avo, because that's what the holiday is about. And the same thing, when you help a poor person survive, right, then of course it generates a feeling of tremendous amount of avo, of love and gratitude, and so on. So Chazal actually made mitzvahs that will generate love from one Jew to another, and that in the end we have to stick together, and only our Torah makes sense. Everything else is irrelevant. So this is a very, very important idea of the power of Purim itself. You see, now, there's something else which I want to add that demonstrates the power of God. Because even if God wants to benefit, how long is he going to subvert nature to do it? So what God wants to show the Jewish people is I don't have to subvert nature. I work within nature. I work within the laws of probability. And I want to show you that the Purim story really, according to probability, really could never have happened. And Chazal, of course, it did happen. Because there are events of Purim that don't make any sense that they even happened. And I'm going to run down a whole series of them. One, what king will kill his queen? Because Vashti was a great-granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, she was the legitimacy of Ahasuerus to the throne itself. You see, so you don't kill the only legitimate claim you have to the throne. That's the first thing that doesn't make any sense, to kill Vashti. The second thing is his request to Vashti that she should appear undressed in front of all the lords of the the realm. This is insane. A queen has to have authority, respect. You want your queen to be seen this way and to have authority and respect, dignity among people if she appears this way. This guy's not normal. I don't care if he's drunk. Even when you're drunk, you don't do this kind of stuff. That's the second thing that doesn't make any sense that happened. So obviously, she refused and he killed her. In any case, so that's that. Another thing is when a king wants to marry, he doesn't put out a beauty contest. Kings don't marry basically commoners. They marry other women that where they conceal agreements with other nations. What king has, has a beauty contest, you know, to make a queen? I mean, there are kings that take concubines, that's, but they're concubines. They don't become the queen of the whole empire. You see, they, it doesn't work that way. So this guy decides to have a beauty contest? The next miracle, right, which is incredible, is that Esther won. You know, it's amazing. And, 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 the, and the Gemara says that she had a greenish complexion and she was not a young woman. How in the world did she win? That's absolutely incredible. Another miracle, right, 
is that uh, Mordechai overheard Bixon Viserish plotting to kill the king. Boy, is he lucky, right? He's in the right place at the right time, and he actually hears two people discussing that they want to kill the king. What, what, do we say this is luck? Not only that, if somebody saves the life of a king, what happens? Then the king rewards him. I mean, it's his life that he just saved. How is it we find that the king never rewarded Mordechai? Of course, it was critical, because that's later on we find that he had Haman escorting him on his horse and so on. But how is it possible that the king never rewarded Mordechai for saving his life? What kind of gratitude is that? It's imp- that, that I mean, that, that's almost impossible to happen, you see. So that's another event that really could not have happened. Then finally we begin to read that the king can't sleep. So what does he do? So in order to go to sleep, he pulls out the Chronicles of Persia. I mean, this is all he's got to read about the Chronicles of Persia. And now in another miracle is that it opened up to the exact page, which, I mean, you know how thick that volume must be, or many volumes? The right volume, and the right page, which says that Mordechai saved the life of the king. So he says, well, what was done to him? So they said, nothing. Could you believe this? Then nothing was done, and that the page opened to this. And then it says that Haman came at that time, which also doesn't make sense, because if he was sleeping, then it must have been at night time. So what's Haman doing going, going to the king in the middle of the night? And not only that, what Haman requested is incredible. Because the king asked him, well, what would you do to somebody you want to what? Honor. So he gives him this absurd idea. Well, let him have his horse, his crown, and the royal garments, and go through the streets. And then say this is what the king does to somebody he wants to honor. I want to tell you something. When there's a king of those, in those days, ancient history, right, they're always suspicious about somebody who wants to kill them. We always read about kings killing off every rival. Haman is the grand vizier. So it, of course, is that Ahasuerus thought to himself, you never know, maybe Haman, the grand vizier, wants to kill me. So how could Haman, if he's a smart guy, make a suggestion right, that will, and he thought it was himself that Ahasuerus was referring to, and he gives a suggestion, right, to have the crown, right, the horse and the garments and so on, that immediately will reinforce Ahasuerus' idea that Haman wants to kill him. How, how absurd can somebody be to suggest even that, especially when he thinks that he's the one that the king is thinking about? And then, of course, you have the party, and all of a sudden, Esther convinces the king, and all of a sudden, he falls on top of her, and the king walks in just at that moment. I mean, the whole story is replete with events that boggle the mind in terms of their probability. What does that show you? It shows you that God works. doesn't have to work through miracles where he defies nature, makes an open miracle like he did in Egypt. No that all these events, which are called coincidences, or they seem to be coincidences, happens because God orchestrates this. You see, nature is God. God orchestrates events, even though they don't look like miracles. And this is what God wants to show. 
that the power of God doesn't lie in miracles. It lies that he directs everything, everything, even events which could never happen, they happen because of what God does, you see. And he wants to demonstrate that to the Jews. And therefore, to, for us to demonstrate that, or to display, we have to get drunk where we don't know the difference between Baruch Mordechai, blessed Mordechai, and Aura Homon, and cursed is Homon. Why? Because to us there's a hero, Mordechai. And to us there's a villain called Homon, right? But to God, there is no such thing as a villain and a hero in terms of the fact that they can do whatever they want. All beings must go in the direction that God wants to do. They have to do the tikkun. The only difference is, is if they do it willingly, like Mordechai, then he's rewarded. But if they do it against the will of God, then they are punished. But in the end, even Haman has to do the will of God. So we get drunk because there's no difference to God in terms of blesses Mordechai and curses Haman. They're both doing the tikkun. The difference is, do they get reward for it or punishment? That's the difference. And we commemorate that. We display that concept by getting drunk. So there's no difference, you see. In fact, the gematria of Baruch Mordechai and Orohomam is the same to show you that really they are the same. Both are doing the tikkun process. And in the end, it's amazing that Homan was the vehicle, right? The instrument that God used to bring the Jews back to love him, to accept the oral law, you see, which is very interesting to think about, you know, what, what that, that Homan could always claim, well, you're right, I meant to do evil to the Jews, but God turned my evil, right? He reversed it. And because of me, the Jews did tshuva, they accepted the oral law. You see, I'm sure Homan is making a claim, uh, uh, you know, in heaven, uh, uh, up there and so on. But this is the idea, you see. So we now understand very important ideas, you see. <clears throat> this is what Purim is about. Purim is about a resurgence of the love that the Jew has for God. And that he completely accepted willingly the Torah, all aspects of the Torah. Because the realization is that the Torah is the only path to spirituality. Even when it seems to focus on laws, right? Which are the preservation, encompass the preservation of society. Yes, it still brings us to Ilam Habo. Because even a mitzvah ben Odom lemokam is equal to a mitzvah ben Odom lechaveroi. They both bring you to Dvekas. They both bring you to Ilam Habo. You see, that's what the Jews realized on Purim. So therefore, Purim is very great. Because, like I say, it is so great that it's the only holiday that is celebrated in the Messianic era. Could you imagine that? Because, like I say, because it culminated in what? It culminated in the love that a Jew has for the Rabbanu Shalom, that we recognize that the Rabbanu is only thought, the only thing God thinks about is how can I save my people? And, and in the Akeda, Rashi puts it beautiful. Actually, it's a sudden statement. Why do you love them so much? Chibosam, your chibo. You know, he, he says to God, 
Why do you love them so much that you're willing to bend over backwards? You're willing to seemingly violate the laws of din to give them ilm haba. And God says, what does he say? Because they love me. So therefore, how could I not love them back? And because of that, we are saved, you see. And that is also the reason why things are so difficult today. Because God needs us constantly to demonstrate that no matter what God, what God puts us through, we love Him, we will do His mitzvahs, we'll be loyal and devoted. And with that display of that behavior, God says to the Sutton and to anybody else that claims, this is why I love the Jews. Because no matter what I put them through, right, even though it doesn't make sense, there's so many difficulties and so many sacrifices that they have to make. They stay with me. They love me. And it doesn't require the whole Jewish nation to do that. You know, even a couple of Jews demonstrating the love in many ways will represent the whole nation. Because this is the essence of Judaism. This is the essence of being Jew, uh, Jewish. So remember, this is the holiday of Ava, of love. And like I say, that's why the rabbis made many laws to demonstrate this, this love, to generate this love. So, think about that. Think about what you can do on Purim. You know, contemplate the love that the Bershom has for us, right? The validity and the greatness of his Torah, which is above all things that the nations will ever do. And therefore, we have to demonstrate love and loyalty to everybody, to the Jewish people, and so on. And ultimately, with that, the Rebbe will bring the Mashiach. Maybe, maybe even this Purim. You know, it's interesting that in Russia, in 1953, Stalin, who's one of the most evil people that ever lived, died on Purim. Could you imagine that he was plotting to kill the Jews? It's a whole historical event and so on, you know. But he actually died on Purim. And by the way, the Iraq war, Saddam Hussein, right, ended on Purim. I'll never forget that. On Purim, all of a sudden, that war, Iraq war, 1991, ended. So Purim has its unbelievable power to defy the enemies of God, you see. So hopefully, uh, this Purim will, will be certainly the beginning of a messianic process. Any questions? Great class, Rabbi. Um, I have Thanks. a question. So, um, if Purim is compared to Yom Kippur, does Purim have the same um, ability to uh, clear us from our sins? Yes. Yeah, if a person, if a person reaches that level where he loves God, then Purim has the power to bring a kapora to that person. In fact, it's even greater because they say if you do tshuva from yira, from fear, then you are forgiven for your sin. But if you do tshuva out of love, that's why you do, and you truly regret what you did, not because you're afraid that God will punish you, but you do it out of love, Right, that you, you feel terrible that you offended God, right? 
then that Avera becomes a mitzvah. The Gemara says, Nas is a chuyos. It actually becomes a merit. So could you imagine, if you do tshuva, if you repent from love, then you will take all your sins and change them into merits. Wouldn't that be incredible? So clearly then, the, the, the idea of Purim is greater because it allows you to do tshuva from Avo. You see. So how long does that hold up? Does it hold up through Mashiach? Meaning, what I'm trying to say is, if our merits, I mean, if our sins turn into merits, if we have real um, regret and ahavat um, of Hashem through our repentance, how long does that hold up? Meaning, when Mashiach comes, a lot of people are going to start repenting and start turning to Hashem through love. So do, yes. the, do they still have time for their sins to turn into merit or no? Like, how, no. how long? Until, no. <clears throat> Everything depends on free will. The problem is once Mashiach comes and he's recognized as Mashiach and the world recognizes, right, the, uh, the tremendous um, uh, change... You see, then the reward is not the same. It's not the same because there's no more free will. So through the beginning of Mashiach ben Yosef, when he's still building himself up, we still have that same merit. You got cut off. Yes, sorry, hello? Yes, Rabbi. So, yeah, am I still on? Yes, you're still on. Okay, good. Okay. Yeah. So, you saying? Through the beginning of Mashiach ben Yosef, when he's still building up his name, so to speak, and building up people's faith in him, um, we still have that merit to turn our sins into, into, into mitzvah, into merit. Correct? Uh, yeah, right. Well, right now, we are still in the time period where we can do this, correct? Because we still have um, uh, free will. You see? So we can do it now. So you're once Mashiach Ben Yosef comes, appears, yeah. we're going to basically lose our free will? No. We won't lose it yet because there's a whole transition time. But eventually, when Mashiach ben David comes, and everything is certain, actually it's also true even by Mashiach ben Yosef. You know, after a certain amount of time, everybody knows what the truth is. So therefore, there's a tremendous diminishment of free will. Got it. You know? That's why you've got to do it. You've got to do it now. Yeah, time's ticking. People don't realize how close we are. And when we look at the world, we can't believe what's going on. I mean, the world is like every day there's something else going on. You know, first it's COVID, and then it's Russia, right? And then we have, uh, what do you call it? Uh, Iran. Iran, exactly. You know, we have the war against Torah and it's thrill. I mean, and, you, and you, we have the incredible corruption of America the destruction of justice. 
We there are crimes all over. We, it's hard to believe that this is what America has become. You know, it just defies logic. Uh, it's hard to believe that America has a president that doesn't seem to be all there. And his decisions are absolutely absurd. So you ask yourself, how could America, which prides itself on such logic and justice, how could it be so foolish to put this guy in? I mean, he's destroying America, you know. Um, and then you look around, you know, like I say, um, uh, Ukraine and, uh, you know, Russia and Putin and all this. It's like, a, it's like the whole world seems to be collapsing. And this is the end. I mean, this is the, all the beginning of the end where the whole world looks like it's in turmoil. You know? So now is the time. So what do we? What do you think? Like you said, maybe something will happen on um, Putin. What, what, what is something that would happen? That because now there's so much things that are happening as is. So what would something be on Putin that we would recognize? Whoa, you know, this beginning. Well, it's hard to say, obviously. Of course. But uh, there are, remember, <clears throat> redemption is not only peace it's also a spiritual revelation this is really what we're waiting for we, we, we want the beginning of spiritual revelation where the Jews will begin to come back to God where all of a sudden Torah you know will be uh, spread throughout the Jewish world <clears throat> now we don't know how that's going to happen but there has to be a restoration of Torah among the Jewish people. Because the essence of the Jew is Torah. So you never know. It could be that the government of Israel will collapse, the coalition will dissolve, and all of a sudden things may turn around and put in a government that is completely in conformity with Torah in a way which doesn't threaten anybody. And, you know, I, I have many ideas of how that can happen where there's no threat to the average citizen. But <clears throat> there has to be a turnaround of some sort. It can't just be all evil, you know, uh, winning all the time. And you never know, that may start on Thursday. Because we saw that certain things, that there was a collapse of the enemy. Like I said, Stalin died on Purim. You know, Saddam Hussein with Iraq, the war ended on Purim. You know, and I'm sure there are many other things that happened on Purim. Because that's the power of Purim, which was initiated, you know, a long time ago. You know. So now, what, what happens in the Sephirot during Purim? Like, how do we understand the power of it through the Sephirot? Well, there's tremendous, I mean, the, the, Kabbalistically, there's a tremendous uh, opening of the spheres. Um, uh, people say that even the sphere of Kesser is revealed. Its energy is, uh, the output is tremendous. Uh, Kabbalistically, Purim is an incredible holiday, uh, Kabbalistically, in terms of 
<clears throat> the energy that comes out of the spheres. Uh, the question is, how does it manifest in this world? That's that's a question, so on, you know. But there is a tremendous output of spherotic energy in the world. You see, that's certainly true. How do we tap into it? Well, I, I mean, a, a Kabbalist would tap into it <clears throat> by by uh, meditating on divine names, kavanot, as they say, kavonis and whatever, uh, and so on. <clears throat> but I, I think I would say that we could tap into it by reinforcing our love of God, and just you know, in in in, in it would be interesting if a person says, you know, in in Shmonesre, you know, Rebunisham, you should know I love you. Even if I make mistakes and I'm blinded by the Sultan, the Eitzahara, <clears throat> you know, and therefore it doesn't come across that way. But in the end, you know, I hold you exist. You are the supreme being. Besides you, there is nothing else. Everything is orchestrated by you, and I love you. Wouldn't that be something? I'm sure that would that would have a tremendously powerful, uh, you know, uh, um, energizer. That who knows what that could do to your muzzle. You know, because like I say, in the end, that's really the main thing. The Rebbeinu wants we are Hashem He doesn't want us to worship him. Like I say, just to be obedient. You know, to appease him, to ask him for <clears throat> favors and all that. He wants us to love him. I mean, that's a, that is a direct command. You know, and in the end, that's the greatest of all, you know, uh, relationships that you can possibly have. Avas Hashem. You know, which will ultimately, uh, you know, uh, spread to Avas Yisrael, Avas and so on. Right? A very great mitzvah. It's one of the top mitzvahs of all. You know, so that's what I would say. That's how you can tap into it. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Have a hot Purim. <clears throat> yeah, everybody should have a tremendous Purim. Don't get too drunk. You know? <laughs> But uh, and uh, check up uh, check up on your husbands, you know, because a lot of people like to drink, you know. <clears throat> in fact, unfortunately, just as a Purim joke, you know, some people in preparation for Purim, right? Because there's always a zreeman zreezen magdim lemitzvus. People, you know, prepare for mitzvah. Some people in preparation for Purim, so they get drunk six six months before. And then they get drunk six months after, right? Because of the mitzvah. So, uh, you know, be aware of that, obviously. But, um, uh, yeah, look, Purim is a tremendous joy, you know, because it was a reconnection to uh, the Rav Hashem. <clears throat>